Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video units. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Coming up on this episode, Allison and I will discuss Ryan Coogler's Rocky spinoff, Creed. By which I mean we'll probably spend a half hour just shouting out our favorite parts while bawling. What about when Rocky has Adonis Shadowbox in the room while he's getting chemo? That was a good part. Thank you. Later in the show will be our Q Shot segment in which we recommend some other movies you can rent or stream at home right now, all chosen around a common theme. And since the year's just about run its course and the Sundance Film Festival is there on the horizon, and since filmmaker Ryan Coogler got Creed after he broke out with Fruitvale Station at the festival in 2013, we're going to talk about some other follow-ups from filmmakers whose debuts were Sundance darlings and maybe talk a bit about how the opportunities that come from being an indie breakout have changed over the years. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few titles that are new on demand. Matt, it's your turn to do this. What have you got for us? Well, first up, I have one of my favorite movies of the year. Don't be surprised. Well, actually, by the time this comes out, my I think my list will probably be out as well. So you'll see this movie on there. It's certainly one of my favorite little movies of 2016. It comes from Poland. It only made about $100,000 at the box office. So odds are, if you're listening to this, you probably didn't see it. It's called Demon, directed by a man named Marcin Rona, who very tragically killed himself not long after the film made its premiere at the Toronto Film Festival last year. It's about a man named Piotr, who's played by a very good actor named Ite Turan, who comes to Poland to marry his fiance at her family's sort of ancestral home, which is this beautiful, dilapidated farmhouse. But while Peter is like clearing some land to prepare for the wedding, he discovers this human skeleton, which has been buried in an unmarked grave. And this kind of triggers this very strange, very spooky series of events at the wedding, including Pewter kind of maybe sort of possibly being possessed by a Dybbuk, which is a Jewish uh, mythology concept, sort of a kind of a wandering wayward soul that hasn't passed over to the great beyond and remains to possess people and sort of ruin people's lives. And Demon is, it, it's, a, it's a very simple story, but I found there was a lot going on beneath the surface of this movie. I've seen it several times and really got a lot out of it every time I've seen it. On a, on a very basic level, it's just a really good movie uh, about what it feels like to be an outsider in a new family and the sort of terror that comes from feeling like you maybe don't fit in with your in-laws or in any situation where you feel like you're the the outsider. And then it also has all this stuff about the barely buried, both literal and figurative, history of the Jewish population of Poland that was kind of obliterated by the Holocaust and which 
it seems like at least in this movie's depiction, the country kind of does not want to reckon with, does not want to think about, kind of wants to let lie uh, essentially in the past. And then you have the very sad fact that this filmmaker, you know, took his own life. And it is also very possible, I think, to read the film as a kind of allegory about depression and about struggling with with that and trying to express that and finding that people, I don't know, guess I guess they just, you know, don't understand what you're going through. I found all of that in there as well. And yet, having said all of that, it's also at times a really funny movie because it's this wedding that keeps getting worse and worse. And the father of the bride is trying to keep up appearances, keeps everyone drinking, keeps the band playing, keeps coming up with excuses why his son-in-law, who definitely seems to have something wrong with him, oh, he's fine. It's He just drank too much. Everything's everything's going well. So it's a really interesting movie that I, I, I hope more people seek out and find. It's called Demon. It's going to be available on VOD on December 6th. Next up, uh, another one of the year's very solid indies, also available on December 6th. It's Don't Think Twice by Mark Berbiglia. Mike Berbiglia, I should say. The comedian and filmmaker who previously made Sleepwalk With Me. This time, he stars as the member of a New York City improv comedy troupe, um, where one of the members, played by Keegan-Michael Key, gets hired to join the cast of what is not called Saturday Night Live, but is obviously supposed to be Saturday Night Live. And the film is about what happens to him and also the rest of the group when he gets chosen to have this huge success, and the rest of the group, frankly, does not. And it's funny, it's sweet, and kind of depressing in the way that it looks at how success can tear lives apart, friendships apart. It's definitely one of the more honest movies uh, I've seen about jealousy, professional jealousy amongst peer groups. But also about when you decide to give up on your dream. Yes, that is in there as well. seriously compromise your dream. When you're like, I'm not going to be famous. I am not going to be on Saturday Night Live. Now what? Yeah. There's a lot going on in this movie that um, I certainly did not relate to in in any way whatsoever. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, there's no personal uh, feelings about this movie at all. And so from a very objective perspective, I can say that I liked it quite a bit. That is Don't Think Twice. And it's available on VOD on December 6th. And finally, I've got something I haven't seen, but I'm looking forward to checking out. It's a horror movie called The Eyes of My Mother, and that's available now on VOD. Uh, The plot description here says, A shocking event in a young girl's childhood has nightmarish repercussions as she grows into a beautiful but dangerous young woman with some very peculiar desires. I've heard some good things about this movie. It debuted at, at, uh, I guess, this year's Sundance Film Festival, but just getting a release now. Did you see this one, Allison? I did not. All right. Well, both of us are going to have to check this one out. It's called The Eyes of My Mother. It's available now on VOD. What did you say your name was? Don. Okay. Well, so the girl said you wanted to talk about something? Yeah, I want to talk to you about training me. Training? <laughs> I don't do that stuff no more. Sorry about that. Listen, it's getting kind of late, kid, so I'm going to uh, close up. How good was he? Paulo? Yeah, he was great. Perfect fighter. Ain't nobody ever better. So how'd you beat him? Time beat him. Time, you know, takes everybody out. It's undefeated. Anyway, I got a lot. So when up. Mickey died, he came and talked to you, right? Talked you out of quitting. Took you to L.A. Trained you. Brought you back. How do you know all this? How do you think? 
On every episode of Film Spotting SVU, we let you pick our main review by voting on one of three possible options. And on the last episode, well, the last episode was a special occasion in which we were live in Chicago. And thank you so much, everyone who came out for that. Mm-hmm. It was such a blast and mm-hmm. such a pleasure to meet people we've gotten to know via Twitter mm-hmm. or via emails in person. And also, it was just so nice to have people come out to see us. <laughs> I still think we can't believe it. So yes, thank you. Thank you. Uh, but on the episode before that, we gave you a choice between Creed, which is on Amazon Prime and Hulu, Tony Collette and Drew Barrymore's Miss You Already on Amazon Prime, and the semi-animated film Paddington on Netflix. And Creed KO'd the other two films by taking 50% of the vote. When Creed came out in November of last year, it was the capper of a year that had demonstrated how many good and great things could be accomplished from within the confines of a sequel, something that feels strange to say after 2016 brought us an avalanche of sequels that seemed to have no reason to exist at all. Mm -hmm. But last year was Magic Mike XXL and Mission Impossible Rogue Nation and Mad Max Fury Road, my favorite film of the year. And then there was Creed, Mm. in which Michael B. Jordan plays Adonis Creed, the son of Apollo Creed, who was played by Carl Weathers. Apollo Creed, of course, the champion boxer who over the course of the first four Rocky films went from rival to ally until he was murdered tragically in the ring by Dolph Lundgren. R.I.P leading Rocky to avenge him and, as we all know, end the Cold War. (laughs) In that order. In that order. Uh, Adonis in Creed, who makes his way to Philadelphia and convinces Sylvester Stallone's famous character to train him, is a result of an affair Apollo was having. And his father died before he was born, leaving his son resentfully in the shadow of a man he never met. And that combination of reverence and a touch of antagonism towards the past is perhaps why Creed works so well for me as a whole. It is a movie that is appreciative of the legacy of the series that came before without feeling held back by it. In particular, it plays around with the idea of credibility and who gets to play the underdog in terms of background, race, and class, and of the public narratives that are created for these fights. So that's what I wanted to ask you about first, Matt. What do you think of the way Adonis ends up being positioned in this movie? It's complicated. He has to deal with being the legacy kid, the one who, courtesy of being adopted by Felicia Rashad, who plays Apollo's wife, uh, came from a comfortable upbringing Mm. with this complication of having had a rough childhood before then. Uh, He doesn't have to box his way out of economic uh, desperation. His nickname is Hollywood. Not an underdog nickname at all. What did you think of the way in which he had to kind of battle for underdog status? That's a great question. He's such an interesting character. I mean, for all of those reasons that you said, you know, he's the he's sort of born into this boxing uh, game, um, but he also is not in a way because he's sort of he's an illegitimate child and he is essentially adopted by Apollo Creed's wife who is not his mother so he does have this very complicated mix of being a a child of privilege in some ways but also not in other ways and you're right he has that hollywood uh, nickname and he also doesn't really want to trade on his legacy, on his name. He wants to be known as his own man. He doesn't want to be Creed. He originally is Donnie Johnson. He's Team Johnson in that first fight, you know, and he's sort of trying to prevent the world from finding out that he is Creed's son uh, until, of course, that does come out. And then it does sort of help his career. And he has sort of a complicated 
reaction to that. It vaults him ahead. Absolutely. And he does take advantage of that at a certain point. I think that's part of what makes this movie so interesting is that, you know, you, you rattled off all those great sequels and it has, this year has been such a terrible year. I mean, in general for sort of big blockbuster movies, but in particular for sequels and a lot of sequels that really feel pointless and, and that no one wanted. And I have to say I don't know that anyone really wanted this movie. Like, there's an there's a universe that exists, an alternate dimension where this movie exists, and it's not by these filmmakers, it's not by Ryan Coogler. It doesn't star Michael B. Jordan. It has Sylvester Stallone in it, but it's a totally different movie, and it's garbage. And everyone says what we say about movies like Independence Day Resurgence was like, why does this exist? No one wanted this. And I think you have to give credit to Ryan Coogler, the director and the co-writer here, for making something that isn't essential but that now feels essential. Like it's hard now to imagine this universe of Rocky without Adonis Creed in it. You know what I mean? Like he seems like such a, a rich, wonderful addition that you can't now imagine retroactively. It's like he was always there. You can't imagine the Rocky universe without him now. Yeah, I do feel like this film is the kind of gold standard for how to evoke nostalgia without feeling weighed down by it. Mm-hmm. You know, it it actively engages with the kind of iconicity and the legacy of the Rocky films, which Absolutely. went from this real uh, grittier, you know, drama about a working class guy who was afraid his life was kind of going nowhere mm-hmm. to being this big cartoonish, you know, U.S. versus Soviet Union. Yep. And then kind of spun off into these these films that followed that people will argue on behalf of, but that I don't think have the status that certainly the first film does by any way. No, you know, no. And I, I, I could argue for some, I think some of the, the Rocky sequels are quite good. Um, and I think that without getting off on a tangent, like they're very interesting in the ways that they're sort of autobiographical for Sylvester Stallone. You know, he became a cartoon. He became a huge movie star. And so Rocky became a cartoon. And I think he actually found ways to reflect his life in that character, particularly in Rocky Three, which is the best of the sequels. But yes, the first movie is the greatest by far. And, and, very and it's a different. Re- and it's a real movie. Yes. It is a drama with a little boxing in it. Not right. a boxing sports movie of cliches and stock characters. Yes. Yeah. And so you have this film that that really tries to reach back for that sensibility, you know, yes. in a way that I think do- it does very well. It, I think it's the best Rocky movie other than Rocky. And Agreed. it's the only one that feels like a real movie, not a big Hollywood sequel that's, Right, that's you know, silly and fun, yes. but, like, ridiculous. Yes. yes, I agree. It has real characters, including, you know, Felicia Rashad is not in a large portion of this movie, but just the kind of act of generosity in the beginning, I think, sets the movie off down a path that, makes you appreciate that it will be about characters, yes. which is that she goes and finds, you know, her the, her husband's illegitimate child, who mm. she probably had good reason to unfairly resent, and instead takes him in and raises him. And yeah. he calls her mom at the end. And I think that that also sets up how this film, you know, this is a film that is about boxing and is about a very male world, but it treats Tessa Thompson as well as this full character. I love her character. She is great. And that she like, that she doesn't like put up with him when he, he, he does things that she doesn't like. Yeah. She, she is like, I have my own career. Yes. You can't hurt it because of your issues. Right. And again, talking about what you were saying, how it's, it's such a smart, 
movie about the way it uses sort of nostalgia and the legacy of this this universe, it very much evokes the old, you know, Yo Adrian Rocky relationship without just re- rehashing it. You know, she's not a shop girl. She's not shy and withdrawing and mousy and has to be brought out of her shell. Any of those things. You know, she's kind of the opposite in a lot of ways. She's a star. But it does give Adonis this very rich sort of romantic life too. Like that's what's important is that it gives the you have that subplot. It's not just a boxing movie. It's not just about legacy. Like, they honor the way that the original movie was a romance. Like, I think that is so great and such a a big part of why this movie does feel better and richer than a lot of the sequels, which I like. You know, that, uh, that, that character and that relationship is so key. Well, I think also in the way in which it, you know, very quietly has black main characters and a black director Mm -hmm. you know the original rocky was openly about how rocky is chosen as this like white underdog right the great white hope yeah the great white hope to like mobilize the the community in philadelphia to want them to get them interested in this this fight he's the italian stallion that's why he's chosen it's no not because of his record he's got a great name that was why he gets the original title title shot right and you know i what does the bartender say when he and rocky are watching this interview with apollo creed on tv and rocky he says where are the real fighters going to come from the pros all we got today are jig clowns Mm. like there's this real sense of like i don't like the love like white resentment against the people who are becoming the famous boxers right and like rocky you know becomes the like this famous white boxer not necessarily reflecting the reality of the sport as it has been over the last few decades <laughs> not necessarily you know no. and i this this movie comes a lot closer to representing what like boxers tend to look mm-hmm. like these days mm-hmm. and i think that the way in which uh, you know ryan coogler represents that and represents philadelphia as it looks now yeah without ever needing to make a big point of it no, like it happens strident. so kind of like yes. easily it's organic yeah i think is just so well done absolutely you know? i completely completely agree it's it it is it, it has all of those things without making them a point without making them the focus it's just it feels real. It feels accurate. It doesn't feel like it's it's there to hit you over the head with some sort of message, which is still present. It's it's just this is how it is. This is and this is what it is. You know, it's again just another really smart facet of a overall a very smart film. I think in the same way, when you finally do get the big uh, scene, of course, of like the running through Philly during yep. the training, you know, instead of instead of mirroring what Rocky does. He has the uh, the kind of bike life kids and their yeah. ATVs and dirt bikes like riding along with him, and it's like such a neat updating and change mm-hmm. of that of a very familiar sequence. Yes, that I it's moving to watch it. It is. It yeah. is. It's a moving film at times. I mean, there are some great scenes in this in this in this movie that you know again just like Rocky. It's like Rocky. You know, it can, can get it's to a you. Sentimental. It's favorite. a sappy it's sentimental great. movie, right? They're like they're male weepies in a lot of oh, ways. Yeah. And you know, we haven't even talked about Sylvester Stallone in this, oh. who's like who does such a nice job. He really does uh, as just this character who is you know aging. A lot of his old friends have died. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, the city has moved on. He's mm-hmm. still a legend, and people still recognize him. But he is. A lot of the people who are close to him are gone. Yeah. And, you know, it sets up this this idea that he's maybe ready to go right. until he is pulled back. Uh, and, and the whole 
storyline about him having cancer uh, and the training montage set up with it. Uh, like, as far as like sentimental training montages go, yeah, I wept. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it is a little bit of a rehash of the relationship in Rocky V, where Rocky, although, which right. is amazing because that movie is like 25 years old now, and that was like, it's hard to believe that like, Sylvester Stallone was kind of like considering himself or positioning the characters like over the hill then when he then went on to make another movie like in between these two where he, where he boxes, boxes. Right. Yeah. which is I think Rocky Balboa is sort of a, a fascinating movie in that way because there's a lot about it that's really good and about aging and mortality. And there's a lot about it that's kind of crazy and ego driven where it's like, yeah, I'm yep. going to box again. But again, it's auto. I feel, find like it's very autobiographical in that way, in that it is it Sylvester Stallone refusing to sort of stripping off his shirt for that, like kind of whatever he's been doing to keep up that physique. <laughs> it's alarming. I'm not going to speculate. Alarming, but, yes. but yeah, like it's not. It's not like something that has you really going, like yeah, Rocky. Right. Kind of like yeah, Rocky. But I find his his sort of very sincere and in some ways kind of troubling attempts to put all of that on screen, like kind of. Very interesting. And to to his credit here, though, I feel like this is not an egotistical role. Like Rocky Balboa, you know, it has a little bit of like, I'm going to show you. Like as Stallone got older, he started to make a lot of movies where he would have these protégés, sort of like about the idea of getting older and having to pass on his knowledge. And invariably in every one of these movies, he would end up like beating them up or proving he's still better than them, like Rocky V. And here he doesn't have any of that. Like that impulse is is gone or maybe it's the fact that he didn't write and direct this one right he's reluctant he has to yeah. be talked into it and he even multiple kinda, times and he has sort of these wonderful sort of old man buffoonish scenes like when uh, Adonis is like it's in the cloud and he looks up at the sky it's such a sweet little moment right it's a dad joke That's yeah really but it cute. works I know it's great I, it, I, well, I think I mean there's no greater to contrast like Rocky Balboa and Stallone with that like you know, weirdly kept up physique to Stallone being like helped to the toilet to throw up in this movie because he's getting chemo. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a huge contrast and like the allowing of physical frailty and of like age to catch up with you. Right. There's like, there's something very significant about that as it, you know, that he's allowed that even, and I think I agree. I think it comes in part from him not writing this. It very well could. And the, the fact too, that he, that Rocky essentially becomes Mickey. He becomes sort of the the figure of like this weird, brilliant wisdom that's sort of both kind of like dunderheaded, but also like insightful at the same time. I mean, there's something kind of beautiful. It's almost like boyhood. Like we've watched this character grow so much that we have watched him develop into this this the character that sort of gave him all his inspiration and hope. There's something very poignant about that in a way that a lot of the sequels were not. That that the passage of time gives this movie um a bit of emotional impact that a lot of the sequels did not have agreed and i think you know it's it part of that also comes from how the movie engages with the idea of authenticity in a, like both in boxing authenticity and with itself as mm. an authentic rocky successor you know i i think that there is a reason that like that becomes a theme, right? Like what happens when, when Adonis goes to fight pretty Ricky Conlon, who's played by Tony Bellew, who's like a real boxer, right? It's not in his hometown. Mm. It's in the UK. Uh, and, and he's fighting someone who ha- is the hometown favorite. It's the hometown hero, working class hero, you know, who calls him out as this phony. And I think that 
it's this movie is very aware of the fact that it has to earn its credibility as the kind of outsider taking over right. this this series that for all of its ups and downs has retained People are very strong authorship. Yeah, people are very affectionate for uh, for it too. Like it means Rocky means a lot to people, including obviously Ryan Coogler. I think that comes through very clearly in in his film. So yeah, I I I like that reading of of that of that ending. One thing I wanted to mention that I don't think we've mentioned once yet, as we're wrapping up here in a few minutes, is the cinematography and the way like the boxing is shot in this movie is great. I mean, one of the things that is not so great about a lot of the Rocky movies is that the boxing is kind of crappy like there's they're very emotional boxing matches but when you watch them now they're sort of absurd they're they're like like, knocking each other out yeah they're hitting each other a million times they're never blocking any punches like the end of rocky 2 is so ludicrous always like crawling up from the ground yeah it's it's just they're just and they're and they're sort of all shot in a way that's i don't know they just don't they don't really stand out. They all kind of blur together, too. And here, the cinematography by Maurice Alberti, there are some wonderful long takes, well, and uh, the choreography is fantastic. And Michael B. Jordan, I find to be a very credible boxer. He got himself into absurd shape, yeah. and he has the moves. He is, he's, I mean, he's great in the whole movie, but he, he really put a lot of effort into that. And I give the movie a lot of credit for... I think, uh, even though I don't think it's the best Rocky movie, it might be the best boxing movie of all the Rocky movies. Well, there's that famous fight that's one one long take, yeah. right? And that, I mean, as much as there is a kind of, uh, I don't know, like a bravado to that, you know, like, ah, uh, look what I can do. It, it looks, it feeds into the feeling of the fight, right? Like, it it. it adds to the way that fight comes off. Well, you know? and what's his nickname? Hollywood. He's a brash, cocky guy. Like, that style fits his character. That's how uh, Adonis would want that fight to look in a movie. He'd want it to be cool and, you know, sure. come get it. Come on. You know, right. like he's ta- trash-talking well, the whole time. I mean, that you know, for all of this movie doesn't go, I think, it's it's got it's got a sense of style, but doesn't go overboard with the flashiness. One of the touches I really like is every time he's about to fight someone, it puts their like his their record up. Yes, you know, it flashes their name up, and you're very aware of one how little actual fight history he has, mm-hmm. but also of just like just these opponents. There's something almost video game like of that moment totally. when you're like, yeah, it's ah, Mike Tyson's here you, punch yeah, out. Here you do, including the way that they having Ricky Conlon as a character throughout, and then they hold it to the very end when he comes out, that mm-hmm. like it flashes his card. Yeah, the, the, it's, 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 a, it's a touch that's so smart, it's kind of surprising that that's not from the other movies. Like, it feels like that should have been the way that all the Rocky movies did it. Yeah. Uh, the one other thing I will give a shout out to, and I do think that the boxing is well done in this, is uh, that this movie holds on to Bill Conti's famous theme mm. till such a key moment. Yeah. It like, there's almost a suspense to it after a while when <laughs> there you're is. like, when is it going when to happen? When are they going to play the damn music? Yes. It's and true. then when it happens, I definitely cried <laughs> 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 because it's, it is of course at a rousing moment. Well, they do a great job too of kind of weaving in. You hear some of the notes just played in very minor keys. You know, those, the little, the sort of more the romance theme from Rocky. You hear that when Stallone will appear on the screen occasionally or when he's driving um when they're training a little bit but yeah the big moment is is saved and there and there there's just so many little smart touches like that i mean even even the way in the very first scene when the like the way they they use the title and what what was his name and the and the title comes up like i get chills watching that i mean that is just that is just great big 
Hollywood grab you by the throat filmmaking. Yeah, you know, as pop cinema goes, I think this is a this is pretty a far up there for yeah. me. I, I, I don't do. think it's a perfect movie, but it's hard to imagine a better version of this movie of Creed of a spinoff of Rocky following Apollo's illegitimate son than this movie. Yeah, and I would watch the hell out of Creed too. I I really hope they make another one. I I, I do too. I and I'm excited to see what Ryan Coogler does next. I, yes. I think that. He obviously has a great sense for big mainstream like Hollywood movies in mm-hmm. a way that I clearly this year has shown us. Not, Not a, lot a lot of people, of people have. do. Yes. We need you, Ryan Coogler. Yes. And if you want to watch Creed, again, you can find it on Amazon Prime and Hulu. We've got a unusual, but a, a, a theme I really like. This was Allison's idea. I, I take no credit for it. This was Allison's suggestion. Thought it was a very interesting one. So why don't you explain the theme of cue shots on this episode, Allison? Well, basically, I thought that Sundance is famous as like the birthplace for film careers, right? The Absolutely. debut films from Quentin Tarantino and Richard Kelly and Steven Soderbergh and Steve James and Kevin Smith and David O. Russell, Robert Rodriguez, the Coen brothers, Michael Moore, Darren Aronofsky, all played at Sundance. Uh, And I think that it's been interesting to see, well, one, it's been interesting to see in particular, as you can tell from that list of names, it has been very helpful to be a white guy to, Mm -hmm. to get a boost out of this. There have been films, you know, from people of color, from women, uh, have not necessarily led to the careers, which I think speaks more to Hollywood and Hollywood's willingness to trust bigger projects to people and how like this ingrained habit of what a director looks like right right it's slowly changing ryan coogler you know getting creed was an obviously sign obvious sign of how that uh is shifting but also the idea of what it means to go on from sundance and what you get after that if you Mm. have a breakout so you know in the days of kevin smith or uh or robert rodriguez or quentin tarantino you would go on to make Ideally, a somewhat bigger indie right, movie. A bigger version of the movie you'd already made, yes, basically. Yes, exactly. Like, maybe you get more famous people. You get, get a, a couple of name stars. Yeah, a more million dollars. Million bucks. You'd still get released by, you know, a Miramax or something like that. Right. But it would still be an indie But you get a release. Yes, you would get a release. And these days, it's like you can get, uh, you can have a, a kind of like art film breakout and maybe go nowhere. Right. Or you can get a creed or Jurassic or world, Jurassic world, which is by a Sundance right. alone or Spider-Man homecoming. Right. Like yeah. a lot of these films that or the amazing Spider-Man or for the that amazing man- Spider-Man. For right. That like, like this leap from being like, here's my two to $5 million movie. If what, that, yeah, if that, or, you know, mo- I don't know where monsters, I don't I, I would guess that monsters was at Sundance or South by I'll check. It was a festival film, I'm, yeah. but you know, to go from that, like a hundred million dollar film to a $150 million film. Right. That there is this giant leap to be made as Hollywood's interest in giant tent poles and in finding relative newcomers to take them on mm-hmm. has grown. 
Monsters premiered at South by Southwest. South but by, the, but the point the is point the stands. same. The point stands is that uh, Gareth Edwards made this tiny little sci-fi movie called Monsters, which was sort of like two people trying to survive in the midst of like a kaiju apocalypse sort of thing. And then he suddenly got to make like Godzilla, like the actual big blockbuster version of that for who knows how many millions of dollars. And now he's making Star Wars. Right. So, yeah, a pretty quick ascent from I think Monsters, like I think he did the special effects himself on his laptop. Yeah, he did. Because he he worked in special effects before. Right. His background is in special effects, which is not surprising when you watch Godzilla. Right. Well, it's funny also in that part of the reason that this leap has been allowed to a lot of people is usually the opposite. Right. Which is that the special effects are probably being laid out already by someone else in a lot right. of these films. And you're there to handle the talking part. Right. I guess before we get to our picks, my question after that very interesting observation is like, is it that the world has changed? It, the, the system has changed? Or is it that the people making these things have changed? Like, are, is it because, uh, you know, and the artists who are making these tiny Sundance movies are now only making them so that they can go on to make Spider-Man Homecoming or uh, God- Godzilla? Or is it that that the world does not allow a, let's say, a you know, if, if Kevin Smith came along today, would he have to go on to make Wonder Woman or something like that? God help us. God forbid. <laughs> uh, or a Quentin Tarantino, you know, if he made Reservoir Dogs, if that was playing at the upcoming 2017 Sundance Film Festival, would we not get Pulp Fiction because he would have to go on? The only opportunities available to him would be to make, I don't know what, uh, the next James Bond movie or something. Yeah, I do feel that Hollywood has changed. I don't think that anyone would argue that people don't have a lot of enthusiasm for funding a $40 million movie anymore, right? right? We talk a lot about how TV has basically filled that gap because, you know, either people people either want to go really big or really small. Yeah. Uh, But I do think that there also, I think that the there's a different prestige attached to directing those big films that I don't think used to be there. Hmm. You know, I think that a lot of those, like the idea of what a, a superhero movie meant like in the nineties, you know, was yeah. not necessarily something where like people would be, uh, you know, it was falling consi- all over themselves to right. want to, it was looked it. down upon. It was yeah. considered hack work. Exactly. Let's, let's be honest about what it, what it, what it was looked upon as. Right. Whereas now it's like this prize that you win. Right. Even it's considered if, this great pinnacle. Yeah. Even, even if, if you're not getting paid all that much and, and you have to take all yeah, that and well. you have to take orders, right. which and is I think another get... reason why these directors are considered uh-huh. uh, for these jobs is that they're young and inexperienced and they're more easily controlled by very powerful producers, which are often the people in charge of the Marvel universe and the Star Wars universe. Right. Like you're taking orders. You're you not are... getting final cut. Right. By Exa- any means. Exactly. Yeah. So that's another reason why uh, a young filmmaker who's on the rise, it's a huge payday, um, which is great, and it gets you a lot of attention, and it might, be, it might bankroll that passion project down the line, but you're still kind of answering to corporate masters. Right. So I don't say, think by any means it's a better scenario. No. But- I mean, on the flip side, you know, if I'm someone who makes a little movie, maybe, that, maybe that's not the worst way to learn the system is you're going to be, you know, if you're willing to compromise some of your vision, you get to play with all the toys. You get to see how it's all made. You probably learn a whole heck of a lot, you know? Right. Maybe that's a, a good thing for we'll, a young we'll filmmaker. never forget the Fantastic Four and the oh, fact boy. that maybe being thrown into being in charge of such a giant production isn't great for you. Absolutely. To be, you know, to make a leap. Yeah. So 
Who can say? Who but can say? it is, we are in strange times uh, to be a breakout indie filmmaker. Yeah. So let's go on to our first picks. Matt, do you want to go first? Sure. My first pick uh, is actually by someone you mentioned in that opening preamble, a filmmaker of some renown. And it's a movie I have not seen in 16 years by design. I still remember viscerally. I may have told this story on the podcast before or our old podcast. I don't remember. It was the spring of 2001, and the on-campus movie group at my college, Syracuse University, programmed Requiem for a Dream, which is currently available for rent. The movie played in uh, Gifford Auditorium on campus, where we showed all the movies. And I walked out of the room. I turned to a friend I was with, and I said, that is one of the best movies I've ever seen, and I will never watch it again. And uh, in the words of the Film Spotting Mothership, original recipe, it is an all-time one-timer. They call it a one-timer, a movie you really admire and like and only want to see one time. It is impressive, I have to say, though, looking back and watching a few clips from the movie today, how much of the movie I I vividly remember. And I'm not someone who remembers movies vividly if I don't watch them a lot. If I see a movie a lot, I remember it. But, you know, we watch hundreds of movies a year, so a lot of them just kind of float away into into the great beyond, into the ether. And, And weeks or sometimes even days after you see it, it can be a struggle to remember what happened or moments or scenes. And Requiem for a Dream just hits you with the force of a jackhammer. And it was Aronofsky's follow-up to his debut film, which played at Sundance, 1998's Pie, which I also saw at Syracuse, which also I was very impressed with at the time. That was a very small film. He really followed that model you mentioned. He made a small film, black and white, no-name cast, and then he got to make Requiem for a Dream. And he was leveling up in terms of scale, and it's based on a famous novel by Hubert Shelby Jr., and it follows the lives of several drug addicts, including Ellen Burstyn's Sarah, who's hooked on amphetamine pills, and Jared Leto as Sarah's son, Harry, who's a heroin junkie. And unlike some movies about drug abuse, which can be, and even some sort of indie Sundance movies about drug abuse, which can be redemptive, uplifting, show you how you know people overcome their addictions and you know persevere, Requiem for a Dream, it just gets darker and darker, and it builds to this... I can, I, it's like a crescendo of cross-cutting horror that is just stunning and unbelievable and just very depressing. Yeah, not for nothing do all the characters end up curled in the fetal position at the end. Yes. <laughs> and I was as I was thinking about this movie and looking back at it, watching some clips, I was thinking about Aronofsky's career after this, and I don't know that he's ever topped this movie. You know, you've got The Fountain, I think is an interesting movie, very ambitious, but a bit of a mess. The Wrestler, which is, at times, it rivals uh, Reckon for a Dream for depressingness, but it's not quite as formally impressive, I think. He probably came closest with Black Swan, which I do love. Uh, Noah, another, like The Fountain, kind of very ambitious, but a bit of a mess. So for me, Requiem for a Dream is hard to top. I would very much, if you've never seen it, I absolutely encourage you to watch it one time. Probably not twice. But it is Requiem for a Dream. It is available for rent. I love The Fountain. I think it's my favorite. Oh, no. No, no. I think it might be. You like The Fountain better than Requiem for a Dream and Black Swan. Wow. Uh, No. Yeah. You are incorrect. No. Maybe someday we'll get to review that one on the show. I would love that. If we could do that and Southland Tales together, another second film. I like Southland Tales. Another second film. Southland Tales. Southland Tales is is a more endearing mess to me. I believe I saw them both with you at press screenings. Yeah, that's probably I have memories of walking out of the screenings and bickering. Anyway, my first pick is a film 
from Alexander Payne, mm. who arrived at Sundance in 1996, having done some writing and directing before. Most notably, he contributed segments to Inside Out and Inside Out 3, part of a series of softcore anthology <laughs> films from Playboy. Look it up on his IMDb. Wow. But in 96, he had made his first feature, Citizen Ruth, with Laura Dern, which would get Payne much praise and attention. And his follow-up in 1999, via MTV Films, was Election, which you can rent or stream on Hulu, a film that would get Payne and his fellow screenwriter a Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar nomination and would also give Reese Witherspoon the role that would establish her as a serious actress after a stint as a successful teen star. It's a movie about a high school election that gets meddled with by history teacher Jim McAllister, played by Matthew Broderick, and uh, it came back into the cultural conversation in unexpected ways thanks to the recent presidential election. Namely, Hillary Clinton was compared to Tracy Flick unfavorably. Right. It was used as an explanation for why she was not likable. And it makes you think... Tracy Flick gets kind of a raw deal in election. You know? She sure does. <laughs> it's, election is funneled at first, at least in the, the beginning, through Jim McAllister's perspective. And he is not an entirely reliable narrator. His influ- like his uh, kind of quiet unhappiness that he never and acknowledges and his resentment gets projected on other people a lot, especially Tracy. Uh, Tracy is a know-it-all and hopelessly a try-hard. Uh, and these are qualities that Jim finds so intolerable. He like, ignores her when she's the only one raising her hand in the classroom. Uh, and he uh, convinces her, conv- you know, uh, takes the most devastating revenge against her that he can, which is to talk the sweet, dumb, popular Paul, played by Chris Klein, into running against her. He possesses none of the particular qualifications, if there are any. The movie is also very clear that student body president is not a real position of power. Uh, He possesses no particular qualifications, except for the one that Tracy knows she cannot compete with, popularity, likability. Everyone likes him, Mm -hmm. and no one in particular likes Tracy Flick. Um, Also, Tracy gets blamed basically by Jim for the affair that a fellow teacher had with her, which by any outside perspective is definitely not her fault. No. But, uh, and also I, you know, gets blamed for whatever feelings of lust that Jim feels for her, Mm. which come out in very funny uh, montages in which he puts her, imagines her face on someone else. Um, (laughs) It's a really bitterly funny movie. Oh, so good. And I think that uh, the fact that it kind of applied so so kind of unfortunately well to the ways in which we talked about the election just speaks to uh, it's the way it captured a particular kind of resentment, like male resentment, uh, you know, on Jim's part, and a particular thing about like what the what qualities we don't like uh, that basically we find innately grating in an ambitious, pushy woman, mm. right? Uh, that that like it is. Uh, it is a role that it's really hard for people to ever say they like you in. Mm. And, and uh, you know, uh, Reese Witherspoon is very funny. She's and, great. And very 
just seems to have so much jaw, <laughs> like leads with her chin, <laughs> you know, like a, yeah, like a good she way screws up it. her jaw uh, determinedly whenever she, she's, she's yes. going to go after something. Her like sheer terrifying determination is, is really something to behold. Mm-hmm. And I still appreciate as much as it is an act of hilarious nihilism, uh, the speech that, that uh, Paul's sister gives. <laughs> so great. Really the greatest moment in the movie mm-hmm. about who cares about this stupid election <laughs> uh, for all that. I think it is a, a sentiment that maybe is damaging in the real world in ways that we've seen consequences of mm. it is in the movie, like almost delightful act of like anarchy yep. just to be like, nothing matters. Uh, don't you agree? Uh, it's a movie that I, you know, the ways in which it cuts in so many directions and leaves no character unscathed, uh, still are impressive. I, I think that it, you know, I, it was not a particular box office hit at the time, but uh, it retains its reputation very well for good reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really dark and really great. Uh, that is Election, available for rent or on Hulu. That's an excellent pick. I recently rewatched it myself when I was doing, I was being interviewed for these documentaries about comedies on True TV, and they did a whole episode devoted to Election. And this movie holds up so well. You know, it's funny, you know, you can compare it to the 2016 election. It was, I didn't even realize it was sort of loosely inspired by the, you know, the original Bush uh, election with Perot, like that whole thing, Uh, which you don't even really have, but you don't even have to know about any of that stuff. There are so many wonderful just details in it. The thing that I never noticed that blew my mind on this viewing was, you know, the, Tracy, her with her setting up her little table to get her signatures and all that. The ultimate moment, like distilling that character to one moment, she has her table that she unfolds each of the legs. She unfolds five legs on a four-leg table, <laughs> and that is Tracy Flick in a nutshell. It's just amazing, that little moment that is, like, so subtle you don't even realize it. It's just amazing. So, yeah, definitely second that recommendation as well so my second pick is another second film by a director whose debut premiered at sundance and the film is winter's bone by deborah granick uh, not one of those guys that you listed we we i got outside the the dude bubble excellent for this one uh her first film was 2004's down to the bone which starred Vera Farmiga as a drug addict. Lots of drug addiction at Sundance, I guess. I, I feel like that's not a surprise. No. Sundance known for right uh, quirky stories about leaving your small town and mm-hmm. grim, grim stories about drug addiction. No, I'm going to get to that in a minute, actually. So in 2010, Deborah Granick actually went back to Sundance with this movie with Winter's Bone, which is available for rent. It's sort of a unusual detective story, I would say. It's about a teenage girl living in the Ozarks whose father is a meth dealer. Sundance, drugs, it's all about drugs, apparently. And the father has skipped bail, which means if the girl doesn't find him, the town can take their house because he used that as the, I guess, the collateral for his bail. And the big draw for this movie at the time was its lead actress, who was then a basically a kind of unknown. I mean, she was on a sitcom that I had never watched. Do you know the sitcom that she was on? Can oh, you name I- it? I, you shouldn't be able no, to. No, I it's, don't know it. It's good that you can. The Bill Engvall show was... Mm. 
her her uh who is bill engvall he's a comedian oh yeah he's a stand-up comic so the show was bill engvall the actress a little known young lady by the name of jennifer lawrence who yeah exactly uh as uh winter bone winter's bone turned out that was really became her breakthrough you know she wound up getting nominated for an academy award for best actress for the role of re and although she didn't win, she ended up losing actually to Natalie Portman and Darren Aronofsky's aforementioned Black Swan. Winter's Bone immediately catapulted her to, you know, bigger and better things, just as, you know, uh, a Sundance movie can catapult a filmmaker to wider acclaim. It certainly did that for Jennifer Lawrence here. And rightfully so. She's great in the movie. I really liked what Roger Ebert wrote about her in his review, which he gave four stars, he says, Lawrence embodies a fierce, still center that is the source of her heroism. She makes no boasts, issues no threats, depends on a dogged faith that people will do the right thing, even when no one we meet seems to deserve that faith. Don't ask for what ought to be offered, she tells her little brother, although the lives of her parents seem to be an exercise in asking and not offering. There's also a great supporting performance in the movie from John Hawks. He was also nominated for an Oscar for the movie, did not win either. And in many ways, I think this is kind of what is a a good stereotypical quote unquote Sundance movie. You know, you are you just mentioned sort of like what when we say a Sundance movie, quote unquote, like so often that's a pejorative to describe you listed some of the qualities. The quirky movie about the oddball coming of age or coming back to the home for the holidays, struggling to find acceptance. That sort of thing. But a lot of the good Sundance movies that avoid those cliches, um, they still kind of have some of those. I mean, really, they're really about, like, very specific places. In this case, the Ozarks. They have great dialogue. And most importantly, they just have great characters. Like, the kinds of really rich characters and details that Hollywood movies, especially these days, are just not that interested. So that's what I love about Winter's Bone. And that is my second pick. It is available for rent. It's a good pick. I really like that movie. I haven't seen it since I think it was in theaters, but that's one I would like to watch again. Yeah. For my second pick, I also went with a lady director. Ooh. Uh, yes. Directress. Directress. I don't know. That sounds weird. Yeah. Uh, it is Kelly Reichert, ah. who this year has certain women mm-hmm. picking up prizes mm-hmm. uh, after a premiere at Sundance. Uh, she made her debut with a movie called Rivers, River of Grass, which screened at Sundance in 1994 and was actually re-released by Oscilloscope in theaters uh, this year in March. I think they used a Kickstarter campaign to raise some of the money for the re-release. That's a movie that's it's definitely worth a look, even though it's, it's, it's in some ways suggests where Reichert's career was going to go and in other ways is very different. Uh, it's about a listless Florida housewife played by Lisa Bowman who commits what may or may not be an accidental murder with a shady type played by Larry Fessenden, who was also a filmmaker. And then they don't quite go on the run together. So it's a, it's a lot of like, maybe nothing has actually happened movie. Uh, but Riker would go on to make shorts and make one mid-length, not quite feature, but really struggle to get another feature together for years and years and actually kind of, uh, I think, remove herself for a while from the game. It would be over a decade before she would make what is officially her second full-length film, which is Old Joy, and which you can stream right now on Fandor. And it got her a lot of acclaim. And, you know, I don't think she has an easy time making movies still. She does not make the kind of movies that people throw money at you to make. But it launched her on this kind of 
second, you know, second wave uh, of fame and acclaim that she uh, has gone on to have and become really one of the most respected female filmmakers on the festival circuit. Old Joy is a movie of incredible delicacy and really showcases the drama that unfolds on this like really micro level. Mm-hmm. It's something that Reichert works with like few other filmmakers do. Um, it is about Kurt, played by Will Oldham, and Mark, played by Daniel London, who are two old friends who are now in their 30s. Uh, Kurt rolls into Portland, where Mark lives, calls him up and asks if he wants to go away for a weekend camping together and checking out a hot springs up in the mountains. Uh, their lives have dis- kind of gone in different directions. Um, Mark lives with his pregnant wife. He has a full-time job. He is still a Portland liberal. You know, he, you see shown meditating in the beginning in his backyard, but his life is clearly like much more stable uh, and grounded. Whereas Kurt is still basically a hippie kind of roaming around with no ties, no permanence in his life. And this whole movie takes place over this weekend as they kind of drive into the mountains and hike into the woods and get lost for a little while and um, try to reconnect and finally make their way to this hot spring. And it is a kind of quietly done, beautifully sad movie about like a requiem for a friendship in a way. It is about these two men trying to rekindle the connection that they once had while also understanding that it's probably gone that you know time has taken them in different directions and that even though they have that history they no longer are on close enough paths to really have anything in common and uh, it's just so subtly done and so lovely in in the kind of ways in which it allows the actors and the pauses between between lines to carry uh, the kind of ups and downs of the shifting dynamic between them over this weekend. It's uh, the moment in which the title is explained, which is part of this rambling monologue that Kurt delivers, is really one of the most like kind of quietly beautiful moments I can think of from a film that year. And it unfolds so naturalistically, you kind of forget that this is a scripted movie in its moment, if not for the scenes that of them walking, of these men walking, that allows them to kind of almost vanish into the wilderness. It's a short movie. It's only, I think, 70-something minutes long. Mm-hmm. And it feels like there is no excess on it at all. It is a miniature portrait uh, of near perfection. That is Old Joy, and it is available on Fandor. Before we get to Behind the Apple, before we talk about one new release that's coming to theaters this weekend, we had an idea. Uh, if you heard our last episode, our live episode, which of course you can still find at filmspottingsvu.com, we had this uh, idea to do this fun thing that we had never done before live where people who were attending emailed us some favorite movies and, uh, and a genre, and we gave them a personalized recommendation. You heard us doing it on the show. And we thought it was really cool, and and the people in the audience who participated really seemed to like it. So we thought, is there a way to kind of incorporate this into the show without making it like the focal point or anything? So uh, this is a, this is what we're gonna do. It's I'm not gonna lie. This is 
very much stolen with love and acknowledgement from another podcast, the uh, Grierson and Leach podcast, which is a fabulous film podcast if you don't listen to it. Hi, guys. With uh, uh, Will Leach and Tim Grierson, two excellent film critics from The New Republic, and they review uh, new releases. But what they also do is if you leave them a review on iTunes, uh, you can pick a movie and have them review it. And actually, I've done that. I left them a review. And can you guess what movie I asked them to review, Allison? Gymkata. Correct. They reviewed Gymkata and they didn't like it, so they're dead to me now, but that's fine. This, these things happen sometimes. People change. In response, know, relationships change. In response, I am sort of stealing their idea, or at least we're transmuting it, but with acknowledgement that this is a very clever idea that they've done. What we've decided is if you go to iTunes and you leave us a review on iTunes, uh, we will give you a personalized movie recommendation from the Sfuvatron 5000. I might, add Very little, nice. I might add a little reverb there, Ooh. so it'll sound better. Or I might not, because maybe it just sounds funnier if I say, Sfuvatron 5000, with no additional audio assistance. What is the Sfuvatron 5000? It's us. That? It's us. But it's a... Don't tell them that. They're not supposed to know that. Man. It's, it's just a... It's a clever name I gave to us giving people personalized recommendations. Okay. So yeah, leave us a review. Now, we don't the way we did this with the live show was we had people give us 10 favorite movies and the genre they wanted a recommendation from and then we would we we announce their picks. You heard us do it on the show. Well, we don't want you cluttering up the iTunes reviews with 10, you know, movies. That's just, you know, that's too much. So what you should do is if you leave us a review, Send us an email, svu at filmspottingsvu. Let us know you did it. Give us, like, the name so we can go and verify that you did do this. And that's it. And we will I – th- I think we'll probably try to do one or two on a show just very quickly and give you, you uh, your recommendations. So these, we'll fire up the Sfubatron 5000 and give you some personalized recommendations. So leave us a, a review on iTunes. If people have already left us a review, because I don't think you can leave more than one – if you want a recommendation, uh, just let us know. Send us an email and say, this was my review, and we will, we will uh, provide that service for you. All right. Let's get to uh, the big new movie that's opening in theaters this weekend, or at least the one that we've seen and want to talk about. It is uh, La La Land. This is the new film from Damien Chazelle, who is the, the filmmaker of, uh, of a Whiplash and another very little movie that I enjoyed as well, Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench. This is definitely his, I would say, his most mainstream film, even though it is a, a throwback old Hollywood musical with Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone having this romance over the course of a year. The seasons pass and things change. Allison, uh, are you a, a fan of La La Land? I am a fan. And I do think that it should be said, this is an old school musical, but at the same time, it is a deliberately sl- slightly shabby musical. It allows you to see the rough edges. It's uh, two leads are never the best singers or They're the best dancers. They, they can, are. Right. But like, it's deliberately not perfectly polished. Right. That's part of the, the charm. Yes. If you like it, I suppose. If you like it. Yeah. Uh, I, I've already heard some rants from people who do not like that. Yes, so have I. Yes. Uh, I find it very lovable, but I have always had a soft spot for this particular approach to the musical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in particular, this movie opens with a musical number that takes place on an L.A. overpass in traffic. That is delightful. Absolutely. That is just really wonderful. Right. And I feel like you will know if you will like this movie from that <laughs> If you do not like that, you right. may as well walk out. Yeah, if that makes you roll your eyes, forget it. If that makes you like burst into applause, which it did where when I saw it at Toronto to a lot of people, like yeah, 
you're going to enjoy the rest of the movie. Although there, it's hard for the movie to top that moment, though, in some ways. No, it, it is kind the high of, point. It I kind of is the high point. It, it's the high point. And I will say the ending is is the very, ending is the very, other is the other high point yes the yes. ending is great yes and then you're right everything in between there are highs and lows but like it it starts really well it ends really well yes uh, sometimes that's all you need and sometimes that's all you need it i i think it will win uh, right from right where we're at right now i think it you're has the best it? chance of best picture yes mm-hmm. in part because also in the great tradition of how hollywood has reflected or not reflected our times it seems a classic kind of escapist movie yeah if a bittersweet one it's also about the power of uh, movies power of movies which is which... also a popular theme with the oscars exactly. they love a movie that's uh, that's about how awesome they all are it's gentle and cozy it is but not sickly sweet no by it's any not means definitely it's definitely not sickly sweet which i appreciated yeah. even though ryan gosling and emma stone have terrific chemistry they're wonderful together it is not like you know you're not going to be sitting there going enough already with the romance like it, it there's there's some uh, melancholy notes that it does strike as well and i think even though yes their voices are not you know they're not broadway stars although this i guarantee this movie will be on broadway in oh, some yeah. form in five years the music, I think, itself at times is really lovely. The actual songs are really lovely and, and catchy and beautiful. Yeah, the Emma Stone's big number, There, she has a particular big number that it just seems like will be a song that that will go other places. Girls and, in chorus exactly. and high school chorus will be singing this in auditions oh, for yes. the rest of our lives. As long as there are teenage girls <laughs> doing auditions in, uh, in, uh, in high school, they will be singing this song. And I think Ryan Gosling's sort of his City of Stars, his little number that he does, I think uh, I, I, yeah. I, it will be the, the same for men. Men will be, del- or, you know, teenage, awkward teenage boys, they will be singing that song. Yeah, it's going to be, it's like, you know, we don't have, I guess Glee is off the air now. This is going to be like the next, I feel like it's going to be the Glee of this generation of theater nerds. Don't yes. you? I, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. This is probably with a dash of Hamilton. Probably Hamilton, Hamilton. is, is no, the sure. Glee yes, of this Hamilton generation's Hamilton. theater nerds. But they'll find room in their hearts for this because it's quite lovable and wonderful. And it And it is. It's, hey, right now, if you need an escape, this movie absolutely provides that. Yes. I think is really great. And looks beautiful too that's one thing to mention it looks beautiful and yet at the same time it finds space for la to be crummy looking in a very realistic way like ryan gosling's apartment is like such a good very crummy la apartment yes in in a way that i don't think you always get to see but a lot of the musical numbers are done with long takes which really let you appreciate you know the dancing and the movement and the the chemistry the choreography yeah. yeah and that's something it's not just like there's one number where there's like one long take it's like every single number is like that where the camera is weaving into the action and steady cam and following the dancers i really like that a lot damien chazelle clearly has watched a lot of musicals and i think has thought a lot about how to capture how to shoot them and to capture people full body when they're dancing which i think is something that we often forget Mm -hmm. annoyingly in a lot of movies these (laughs) days uh, both for fighting and dancing that you want to see someone's full body Agreed. So two two enthusiastic recommendations for La La Land. Let's get on to Behind the Eight Ball, where we wrap things up on the show with some new recommendations that have just been added to streaming. We give you two listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at that email address I already mentioned, SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also give you one film chosen blindly by number from our 
my lists on Netflix. Allison, who's going first this week? I'm going to go first. All right. Well, then let's start with three new streaming titles. Well, first up is a film that was added to Amazon Prime recently that I had never heard of, but immediately added to my Amazon watch list, which admittedly I never use. It is called (laughs) Kamikaze 89. Here is the description. I'm listening. Rainer Werner Fassbinder, clad in an iconic leopard skin suit, stars as a tough detective in this wild neon-drenched cult classic about a multimedia conglomerate threatened by a phantom bomber in a futuristic dystopia. All right, I'm adding it to my watch list, too. (laughs) Like, so many words in there that I like. Done. Uh, Yes, so that is Kamikaze 89. Maybe you will want to also give it a whirl. Also new to Amazon Prime is De Palma. This is Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow's movie, their documentary about Brian De Palma. That is basically them talking, like letting Brian De Palma talk his way through his own filmography. It is very geeky, very filmmaking focused. Uh, You know, it actually has discussions about like his use of split diopter and things like that in a way that very, still very accessible. Um, it's uh, gossipy as well. It's a really good time if you are a De Palma fan, though I took my brother to see it and he barely knew any De Palma movies and left just wanting to watch his whole filmography. Mm. It is also sort of the story of one man's long breakup with Hollywood. Mm. Uh, but it's, if, it's a good time. Uh, De Palma, it is on Amazon Prime. And finally, new to Shudder is something that I was really intrigued by and had not heard of. It is a miniseries called Penance. This is a five-episode miniseries from 2014, written and directed by Kiyoshi Kurosawa, the director of Pulse and Bright Future, and more recently, Daguerreotype. Uh, Here's the description from Shudder. This eerie, intense psychological thriller unfolds on a sleepy small-town playground where a mysterious stranger approaches a group of young friends, then kidnaps and brutally murders one of the girls. Racked with grief, the victim's unhinged mother demands that the shaken survivors identify the killer or face a penance of her choosing. Growing up in the shadow of this tragic debt, each of the four girls cultivates a warped survival mechanism, avoidance, desperation, fear, and obsession. And apparently each episode deals with one of the girls. Uh, I really think uh, Kurosawa is an interesting filmmaker, even when I don't necessarily like all of his films. So uh, I'm very intrigued by this. It is on Shudder. We should say, I, we've mentioned it up before, I think, but Shudder is like a new streaming service all about horror films. Right, right? it's all horror films. Shudder.com. Uh, yes, and it's got some great people working on it. Yeah, it's well curated. Yeah. So it's, if you are a horror fan, Definitely I know there's so into. many <laughs> streaming sites these days and yes. you can feel like they're getting cut narrower and narrower, but that one I think might actually be worth the invest, investing in. Okay, how about two listener recommendations? Okay, first up, I have one from Stuart in Bondurant, Iowa, who writes, I wanted to suggest a couple of movies for your listener recommendation segment, both of which were inspired by my anticipation of the release of La La Land in a week or so. I hope you never know about it here in Flyover Land. Guy Madeline on a Park Bench is streaming on Fandor. This is Damien Chazelle's first feature, mentioned frequently in connection with La La Land. When I pushed play, I was immediately struck by a kind of disconnect between the black and white documentary-style images and the gorgeous, jazzy soundtrack. And that feeling carries through the entire movie and acts as a kind of commentary on the unreality of movie musicals. It really is striking and interesting to check it out as a point of comparison to Chazelle's obviously more polished current effort. I would also recommend The Young Girls of Rochefort, which is streaming on Filmstruck and is one of my favorite movies. The clips I've seen of La La Land are very reminiscent of this French homage to the MGM movie musical of the 50s. 
with catchy music by Michelle Legrand, a glorious primary color scheme, kind of a dumb plot, and Kel Oror, a dubbed Gene Kelly in a supporting role, but they can't dub the moves. Um, so those are two very good recommendations. We're both, I think, big fans of Guy and Madeline on a park bench in particular, uh, which is a very different and like much lower budget type of musical, but yes. it's, it's pretty neat and mm-hmm. also engages with the form. Second recommendation from Mark from Winnipeg, who writes, Hi to both of you. First of all, I have to take a moment to say that I really am a great fan of your show. I think you find the perfect balance of popular and snobbish and trashy. And I honestly look forward to your podcast more than any other. And I listen to a lot of them. Thank you, Mark. Actually, honestly, popular and snobbish and trashy is exactly <laughs> what I've we ever aim wanted for. to be. Psychomatics um, fawning is complete. I finally sat down to watch Tickled last night. I had seen several interviews with the filmmaker, so I had a basic idea of what would happen and where it would go, but there were still enough twists and turns and WTF moments to make this perhaps my flat-out favorite movie of the year. I never would have thought that my life needed the presence of a documentary on the seedy underside of competitive tickling. Mm. But I'm very, very happy that it's now part of my film vocabulary. I know that it's available for rent and purchase on iTunes in Canada. And based on the banner on the movie's website, it's almost definitely in the U.S. version of, as well. I think a lot of people would love this movie if they gave it a chance. That is from Mark from Winnipeg. I would second that. This movie it's a pretty crazy movie. Like, as little as you can read about it, the yeah, better. Just go, yeah, go in cold, as, as cold as you can. We shouldn't say any more. It's just we, we agree with that recommendation. All right, and how about one film chosen blindly by number from your my list? You gave me number seven. That is Under the Sun. This is a documentary by Vitaly Mansky, I think, uh, a Russian filmmaker who did long negotiations with the North Korean government to shoot a film there and ultimately got permission to make one about a girl and her family over a year in which she prepares to join the Children's Union uh, and also does things like patriotic school pageants, eating delicious food in the perfect apartment she lives in with her family. And like all sanctioned things to come out of North Korea, it is obviously intensely choreographed propaganda. But Mansky kept the camera going between takes. And so captured a lot of footage of the government minder who was always with them, feeding the subjects lines and like exhorting them to be happier looking. And slowly you get the indications that the house they live in isn't really theirs, that they were moved into it. And that the jobs the parents have are ones they were reassigned to because they look better on camera. Uh, It's been compared to a real-life Truman show, except obviously Mm -hmm. much, much darker because of the totalitarian government it takes place under, (laughs) uh, real life. But I I think, you know, different people have struggled to make a movie about North Korea with all of the challenges that come with trying to make a movie in North Korea. And this one sounds like it kind of gets some glimpses outside of the kind of very vigorously controlled messaging that usually is all you're allowed um so that is under the sun sounds great all right matt are you ready yes give me three new releases first up on amazon prime is one of the most provocative movies of 2016 the lobster the english language debut of greek filmmaker yorgos lanthimos who made dogtooth and alps the lobster may be in english with some recognizable stars like colin farrell rachel weiss john c Riley. But it's definitely of a piece with the filmmaker's previous work. If you like that, I think you will definitely like this. 
Uh, it's demented. It's a little disturbing. It's a kind of a lo-fi sci-fi movie set in a dystopia where all single people are rounded up and sent to a hotel where they have, I believe, 45 days, was it, to find a romantic partner or face being turned into an animal. I have to be honest and say I didn't love the movie the first time I saw it, but I, I watched it again and liked it a lot more. I still think the first half is stronger than the second. I agree. But I do think uh, like on a second viewing, I sort of saw what that second half was doing and sort of admired more of what was going on. So it's – and I have to say it has – the movie has stuck with me in the months since I saw it. That is The Lobster on Amazon Prime. Next up, speaking of movies that have stuck with me, is Boyhood, Richard Linklater's epic tale of childhood, which he filmed in secret over the course of a dozen years with a cast that includes Ethan Hawke and Patricia Arquette, who won an Oscar for her role. They play the parents of the main character, a boy named Mason, and the film follows his development from the ages of 6 to 18. I know that there has been a little bit of backlash about this film recently. I feel like I've seen some people saying, oh, it's a gimmick. It it doesn't do enough. It doesn't talk about enough important issues or whatever. But uh, I just know that when I voted on the recent BBC.com poll of the best films of the century so far, to me, it was the clear number one choice. I couldn't think of anything else that would top it. So that is Boyhood. It is available now on Netflix. And finally, this time, I've got an early and interesting film by Woody Allen. It's Stardust Memories on Amazon Prime. This film was made in 1980, and it's sort of in the transitional period of Woody Allen's career as he shifted from making broad comedies to sort of more serious comedies to flat-out dramas. And the movie is expressly about that shift. He plays a filmmaker who is known for comedies, whose audience now resents the fact that he's starting to focus on making dramas. He's being honored at what's kind of, I guess it's like a film festival, and he's sort of looking back at his life. It's shot in amazing black and white by Gordon Willis. It was sort of controversial in its time, and frankly kind of hated by a lot of Woody Allen fans because it was seen as an attack on them by Woody Allen because the his fans, the characters' fans in this movie, are not exactly portrayed sympathetically. But to me, that's what makes it an interesting movie. Woody Allen has always insisted this is not an autobiographical movie. He's playing a character. He's not playing himself. But to me, that seems frankly impossible. And if it's true, it's not as interesting a movie. I would encourage people to watch it for themselves and decide what they think. I feel like love it or hate it, you're going to have a very strong reaction to it. That is Stardust Memories. It is available on Amazon Prime. All right. How about two listener recommendations? Uh, Okay. Our first comes from a listener named Caleb, who you can find on Letterboxd uh, with the username Super Orphan. Hi, Matt and Allison. I have a Netflix suggestion for you. And that is the film Too Late from director Dennis Houck. Too Late stars John Hawks in probably his best role yet. Yes, even better than Winner's Bone and Martha Marcy May Marlene. I saw this film at Fantastic Fest in 2015 and fell in love with it. There is a special way this film is shot, utilizing a lot of long takes and tracking shots that I won't spoil for you if you don't already know what it is. The film is just over 100 minutes and is an absolute breeze to watch. If you are looking for a true film festival hidden gem to impress your friends with, this is the one that's too late, T-O-O, late. And that is available on Netflix. That's a recommendation from Caleb. I have to say, I saw the film at Net, uh, at Fantastic Fest also. I was less of a fan of it than Caleb, but it is definitely f- interesting on a formal level. So if that part of it appeals to you, I would definitely say it's worth checking out for that reason alone. And John Hawks 
John Hawks is very good in the movie as well. All right, our next recommendation comes from Brian. And Brian writes, I'm sure I'm not the first person to stumble upon Bob Roberts and its timeliness, but thought it warranted an email and a recommendation. This probably felt really funny and out there in 1992. Today, this feels less hilarious and more eerily prescient. There is an argument between Roberts and a disgusted TV journalist towards the beginning of this that captures almost every Facebook post I read in the weeks and months leading up to November 8th. Add to that a controversial appearance on an SNL-type show, dangerous political acolytes, and a cynical ending that hits at the, hints at the start of a fascist rule in America. Wow, Tim Robbins. Wow. Thanks, and keep it up. That's Brian recommending Bob Roberts. Okay, and one from your my list. You gave me number 12, and right now on my my list, that is num- uh, number 12 is Documentary Now, which I still have to admit I have not watched. Uh, elevating the art of parody, this sharply comic series spoofs high-profile documentaries such as Grey Gardens and The Thin Blue Line. I've heard it's tremendous. I'm sure I would love it. I love Bill Hader. I love Fred Arms. I, 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 I really, know all these movies. I really enjoy this. In the new season, yeah. there is a Jiro Dreams I know. Of Sushi I've heard you even talk about is, it. Yeah, that is pretty great. Yeah, I have to just watch these. I don't, I don't know what I'm waiting for. All right, that's my, my list pick documentary now on Netflix. Okay, let's get to our listener's choice options for our next episode. We've got three recent films. I have the first one. We have already, or I already mentioned it. I just mentioned it in my recommendations. It is The Lobster, which is on Amazon Prime. I already explained the the filmmaker, Yorgos Lanthimos. I already explained the premise, the hotel, the 45 days, find a romantic partner, be turned into an animal. There's plenty to discuss. We could talk about the second half. We could talk about the first half, why we like the first half more, what we think the second half is doing, and whether it works or not. There's a lot we could do with this one. That is option number one, The Lobster, streaming on Amazon Prime. Option number two is a movie that I've heard a lot about, but actually never got around to seeing. Uh, White Girl, which is streaming on Netflix, a Sundance directorial debut from this year, uh, written and directed by Elizabeth Wood and starring Morgan Saylor as a university student who moves into an apartment uh, in Ridgewood, Queens, and actually a neighborhood right by the one we are recording this, this podcast in. Whoa. And starts dating a local drug dealer played by Brian Mark. And some story about white privilege, et cetera, unfolds. Um, I, I feel like this is one that, for all that it didn't make a big splash when it got its theatrical release, I have seen bubble up a bit in year-end talk. Not mm-hmm. necessarily as one of the best films of the year, but as one of the most kind of, like, kind of a big node of conversation. So I think it's worth taking a look. It's probably It sounds like there's plenty to talk about yep. in it. Uh, that is White Girl. It is on Netflix. Okay, our final option is available on Netflix, and it's called The Wailing. It's directed by Nahong Jin, who's a very talented uh, Korean filmmaker. His previous movies were The Chaser and The Yellow Sea. I think I saw both of those movies at Fantastic Fest, I want to say. I definitely saw The Yellow Sea at Fantastic Fest. I saw The Chaser at Fantastic Fest. and He's a real, uh, he's, a, he's a perfect Fantastic Fest filmmaker. Yeah, those movies are really dark. Yes, uh, but awesome. But so I, awesome. Yes, I, I have not seen The Wailing yet, but you have, I correct? Have. Okay, so the, here's the plot description. This is, I think, I grabbed from probably Wikipedia. A 2016 South Korean horror thriller film about a policeman who teaches 
teams up with a shaman and a mysterious woman to investigate killings and illnesses. Uh, I'm not sure quite what to glean from that description, but I just really love the filmmaker, and I just want to see his new movie. Allison, you were saying you maybe didn't love this one as much as the others? I felt like there was a lot I didn't fully get in this movie. Uh, that, that, that description's fairly accurate. It is kind of, it is like an investigation into plague and possession, let's say. Okay. Uh, among other things. It is a like long, sprawling movie that has a lot in it. Tends I to just make felt long, like, sprawling movies. Right. I do feel like there's a lot to talk about about this, and mm-hmm. it might be helpful for me to talk it out. Okay. But it was a movie that I... It ended, and I felt a, a little, little, per- little like perplexed, shruggy. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It was a huge hit. I'm looking at the box office. 50- he like his movies for all. Like the Chaser was a right. giant hit there, which They're is when you watch it, Asian. yeah, it's astonishing crazy. because yeah. it is so bleak. <laughs> okay, well, that's option three: The Wailing, available on Netflix. Okay, which of these movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Units? You can send your pick to SVU at Film Spotting SVU, but why do that when you can just enter in the poll on the right hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com you've got to get your vote in by monday december 12th at noon that is when we will call it and announce the winner on twitter at our twitter account at filmspottingsvu and also on our facebook which is facebook.com slash filmspottingsvu and you'll have all of that week to watch the film that wins and join us for our conversation on the next episode which will be on tuesday december 19th Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations, the movie review you pick, and probably the Spoovies, now that I'm thinking about yeah, it. It's Spoovie time. Spoovie time. Spoovie time. Anyway, in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore, at Matt Singer, and follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice. And of course, that's where we also share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners and from Allison as well. Occasionally from me, mostly from Allison. And don't forget, if you leave us a review on iTunes, and it should obviously be a very positive review. Positive, positive. <laughs> Please don't insult us and then ask for us for a recommendation. But if you do leave us a review on iTunes, shoot us an email, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. Let us know you did it. And the Spoovatron 5000 will start sending out recommendations, personalized recommendations just for you. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. <laughs>